Big visions and bold ideas meet practical challenges. This is an age-old tension in business, of course, but also one with even more pressure and complexity today. Let's talk about how leaders with big visions are actually meeting big, grand challenges in an age of disruption. It's Seth Kahn, author of Visionary Leadership, How Association Leaders Embrace Disruption in the 21st Century, on the Manager Message Podcast. Welcome to the Manager Message Podcast, where professionals come for ideas and inspiration to grow by talking about their businesses more effectively and getting lots of other people to do the same. Here is your host, consultant, professional speaker, and author, Jim Carr. Come on in and welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast. I'm Jim Carr. I help professionals and entire organizations to get the most out of their everyday business conversations, the ones that generate by far the most growth and word of mouth. That means more revenue, customer engagement, employee engagement, as well as an enhanced brand and reputation. I help through professional speaking, consulting, and advisory work. On this program, we discuss three foundational components for managing your message. One, the message itself, meaning the words, stories, visuals, and evidence you want your marketplace to know about. Two, your messengers, the network of people who can help you share that message. And three, management habits that will shape your culture and turn those improvements into an everyday business advantage. My new book is launching this fall from Career Press. It's titled The Science of Customer Connections, Manage Your Message to Grow Your Business. You can find a sample as well as pre-order opportunities in our show description and on the website. Simply put, it's much easier to grow your organization when you are a message manager. So how can you lead most effectively and grow your organization or cause where you don't necessarily have a lot of built-in institutional power? Many environments are all about collaboration and consensus, and this is good, but it can also make change slow and uncertain and difficult. A great example is with professional associations, and our guest is right at the forefront. A trusted advisor to more than 100 CEOs, Seth Kahn is a thought leader, business strategy specialist, and author. Seth is the person you think about for visionary leadership and grand challenges, which we might explore a bit today. He began this path toward visionary leadership in the 1990s, helping introduce knowledge management at the World Bank. Next, it was working with the president and a director of the Peace Corps. Seth has since become a person CEOs turn to for large-scale change and innovation. He's worked with corporations such as Marriott and Royal Dutch Shell, but especially with associations as varied as the Center for Financial Planning, the American Nurses Association, and the National Apartment Association. He's also served on the boards of several groups himself and as a dedicated husband and father. Seth has written several books, including Getting Change Right and Getting Innovation Right. His brand new book is Visionary Leadership, How Association Leaders Embrace Disruption in the 21st Century. Seth Kahn, thanks for joining the Manager Message Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. We haven't talked in quite some time, and you've been busy, and you're certainly well involved, particularly in the association world. And let's set that environment a little bit. The environment of business, particularly those professional associations, these are often certainly very valuable organizations, 
long histories. They serve their members. And yet, I would suspect that for many associations, they face a lot of headwinds. New technologies, the way people work and meet today. And they might struggle sometimes to figure ways to add value for their membership. So what do you see? You're there on the front line, Seth. What do you see as the pressures on associations in particular that are forcing them to consider these fundamental changes? Well, there's a lot of disruption in their environment. If they are a professional society, then they're serving a particular scientist or a health practitioner or a doctor, a lawyer. And all of these professions are facing massive disruption. And in terms of working together, they really face big challenges when it comes to deciding how the entire profession can work together to take advantage of an opportunity to be nimble or to even deal with a disruption that could potentially change its value proposition. And the same is true with trade associations, which are associations of businesses. So these organizations are really having a difficult time for the most part staying relevant in today's environment. And you work a lot with leaders, obviously, within those types of associations. And I wonder, Seth, you've been at this now for a couple of decades there in that world. Are the leaders today in that world different in their motivations, their skill set, what brings them into that world? Has there been a difference that you see today versus 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, or is that a relative constant? Yeah, there's a couple of things. One is that the new CEOs, the new volunteer leaders are different because they have a millennial mindset. You know, they're digital natives and they just look at the world differently. They believe that change can happen fast. It can be radical. It can be transformational. And they see no reason to hold back. Whereas their older peers are much more focused on incremental change, not let's not upset the boat. I mean, it's a generalization, but in general, I find it to be true. Now, that said, there's another thing to keep in mind, which is that the disruptions that we're talking about are really hitting the fan right now. People have been talking about them since the 1960s. So, you know, we've had 50, 60 years of people saying, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, and now it's here. And it's here is a lot different from it's coming. I'm curious, because I didn't realize how long this tidal wave has been building. But back in the 1960s or 70s, it wasn't the case that people would talk about you know, instant global communications and mobile workers and the like. But what were the kinds of things they were looking back a generation or two in saying these are the big changes and forces acting upon associations? Well, the real prophet in this space was Peter Drucker, and he was writing about knowledge workers in the 1960s, saying, you know, we're going to see a real shift in what people get paid for, and they are going to get paid for what they know and how to apply it. And in the 1960s, that was a radical idea. The whole idea that what you know is an asset, not how much money is in the bank, you know, not what skills you carry, but what you know, which is a very nebulous thing, is actually the primary asset that you bring to work. That was being talked about in the 60s by Drucker. The whole notion about visionary leadership, we're going to talk a little bit about what makes for an effective visionary leader. I would imagine that there are some people when you say visionary, that they might even roll their eyes or they may have some degree of skepticism and go, yeah, the vision's fine, but what about practical implementation? Do you have skepticism that you have to deal with, whether it be for the leadership, a board of directors, or a collaboration there, in that you can have visionary leadership 
and you can actually get things done at the same time. Yeah. You know, I do encounter some skepticism, but I think that by the time someone is calling me in to consult with me, they've crossed that bridge. If people are wondering, should we innovate? then they're probably not picking up the phone to call me. <laughs> Good point. People are calling me when they're asking, is our investment with Seth the best investment in innovation or is it something else? Which means that they're already pushing the envelope. Yeah, Good point. And so you have written this new book. You've written in the past about change and innovation, and now you're focused uh, specifically on the characteristics and the attributes of leaders who are able to help form and carry out this sort of vision. Have there been certain particular models or are these more of a collection of from the, by now I'm sure hundreds of leaders that you've worked with and seen up close and personal, these characteristics, where do they come from, Seth, before we start talking about them individually? Yeah, it comes from my own observations working with CEOs who succeed regularly and my own personal diagnostics. I've been watching them closely. I'm always asking the question, you know, what do those who succeed do or know that those who don't do not? So I've been able to kind of track the different competencies that you see in successful leaders and then chunk them down into super categories, if you will. And I believe we have three main super categories or attributes. You talk about personal power, association leadership, market acumen, and Perhaps we'll take those a bit at a time here because you have competencies within each one. So you've really broken this down and gotten specific about it. Let's go to the first one first. You talk about the attribute of personal power. What does that really mean? That is the ability to intentionally transform yourself so that you build your ability to influence We've all heard of lifelong learning. Learning tends to be kind of a more passive. It's this, and when you talk about learning, you're talking about gathering knowledge and information. And when we talk about transforming oneself, we're talking about changing the ability to influence the world around you. And so personal power comes down to the skill sets, competencies, and experiences that allow you to influence larger and more powerful constituencies. What I found really interesting here. Seth, and how you laid out two of the necessary competencies within this attribute of personal power. You talk about both storytelling, which is something certainly we've heard a lot more about, we talked about on this program, but also story listening. So you talk about the interplay of those as well as other competencies within personal power that you see are necessary today. Sure. Storytelling is something that I had deep exposure to when I was at the World Bank. I was actually a performance storyteller when I was hired there, which meant that I was doing like fairy tales, you know, Grimm's fairy tales, Jewish fairy tales, Aboriginal fairy tales. I was really interested in the story as a way of conveying a world. And when I was at the World Bank, I had a boss who was interested in having change spread rapidly among thousands of people. And we discovered that storytelling, telling a compelling story, was one way to harness the speed of gossip, if you will, to get something to really travel fast and also carry with it an accurate description of what it was that was traveling. We held think tanks. We involved Lucent Technologies, Disney, Hewlett Packard, Ernst & Young, the International Storytelling Center, Eastman Chemical, and others. And we worked together to identify how storytelling works in 21st century organizations. 
as a storyteller, I often had people ask me, how do you get to be good at storytelling? And I always thought by listening to a lot of stories. But then I learned that that actually was a skill in itself, that you can learn a tremendous amount in a very short period of time by asking someone to share their personal experience. And so story listening became a very important tool. And in fact, there's been research done that shows that if you want to get someone to change their mind, the first thing you need to do is listen to what they have to say, to listen to their story. So that's how that kind of yin and yang storytelling, story listening came together. Then there's two others, two other competencies in the personal power super category, and that is intentional self-transformation. I spoke about that earlier, but when a leader has to pick up a new skill set, they have to dive into a new area and they have to build experience that they can then leverage in that new area. And the best way to do that is to jump into the deep end of the swimming pool do something that you haven't done before and transform yourself in the process. And that is actually something that I see most of the CEOs I work with doing very well intuitively. They often commit themselves much to the consternation of their staff to something that they've never done before. And that's because they're not afraid to try something really radically new. And then the fourth competency is radical self-care. Radical self-care comes because when people are stretching themselves and pushing the limits, they really have to get good at sustaining themselves and renewal. And so that means being aware of the core activities or lack of activities that really sustain you. And that could be anything from going to the gym to spending time with your kids to going to church or spending time in nature, whatever it is that is really important to you so that you get refueled and you can continue to operate at a high performance level. And it would seem, Seth, that those last couple of competencies, when you talk about intentional self-transformation and radical self-care, I'm imagining that doing that and letting the people around you, the people on the staff, colleagues on the board around you in that organization would accomplish a couple of things that are really important. One is that, you know, certainly you're showing that you're proactive about things and that you're not going to ask other people to do things that you wouldn't do yourself. And it probably also keeps for that person a sense of empathy and understanding of what it's like to go through these sorts of changes, whether you choose them or they're foisted upon you. So I'd imagine both from the modeling and the empathy standpoint that that is what lifts your personal power over time. Yes, that's true. That's a very good way to say it. So the next part, the second kind of super category here for visionary leaders is you talk about association leadership, it's really the ability to lead collectively. And certainly organizations like professional trade associations, but I can also imagine universities, non-governmentalist organizations uh, that you've been involved with and the like, so many of them depend upon consensus and collective decision-making. Even in corporations today, I sense that there's more of that. So what are the areas here of being able to not only function well yourself, but to gather and motivate a group around you. Great. So there's four areas there, four competencies. The first is reframing obstacles as opportunities, which is something that I find most CEOs do, again, naturally, but often their boards and their executive teams do not. This is a competency that has spread widely in the private sector, but in the nonprofit center is still taking hold. And that is being able to look at a problem or a challenge and understand that there's a unique opportunity embedded in it and quickly doing that judo move where you take the force that's coming at you. It looks like it might take you out or harm you and you use it to your advantage to push you farther down the field. 
Second is collective learning. And this means that you're not just keeping all of what you're learning in your own head, that your team is learning as well. And that whether that's your board, the executive team, or another group that you're working with, making sure that everybody is profiting from the experience that's taking place across the group so that you are really distributing the learning that's happening and not hogging it, if you will. The third is leading for collective impact. The collective impact methodology is a new methodology that's come about just in the last 10 to 15 years. And it's really about working across organizations. So that means mobilizing other organizations that do not report to you so that you don't have a stick to hold over their head. You can't say you must do this or else it's going to affect your personnel evaluation or there's going to be some other consequence. The only way that you can get their support and continue to apply it towards your end is to have a common agenda, to be working towards the same goal that is a common interest. And so there's a skill set that goes along with leading for collective impact. And the last one is called the ecosystem leadership. And in associations, you have multiple constituencies that are overlapping. So you have committees, you have executive committee, you have the board of directors, you have partners, you have the members at large. All of these different groups are interrelated. Individuals can be members of multiple sets. And so you have to learn how to lead in this kind of messy, overlapping environment. And there's a skill set that goes along with that. Seth, before we go to the third and final attribute of visionary leaders, I just want to acknowledge a couple of things that I've learned already in phrases here. I wrote down harnessing the gossip and the judo move. <laughs> Those are great ways of illustrating some of these ideas here. Thank you. you also talk about market acumen, which would seem to be a view about strategy, being nimble, making sure that everyone is on a valuable path. When you talk about market acumen, what tends to make a visionary leader? Well, now this is a competency that really is coming into its own in the nonprofit world, but again, the private sector, because it's always been dog-eat-dog world and knows well about the importance of understanding what your competitors are doing and what the larger patterns in the system are. In, in the nonprofit world, it has suddenly become just as important. And I say suddenly because, again, Drucker's been pointing at this for 50 years or so, but it's hit. It's here now. And what we have, we have private sector people competing with the nonprofit world. So where you might have in the past have had an organization like the National Society of Professional Engineers, they own the professional engineer space, suddenly two guys in a garage can start putting together some app that's going to appeal to professional engineers and you're going head to head and they don't have a board to report to. They don't have the same constraints you do. They can just feed the beast and go after wherever there's red meat, you know, and you, meanwhile, as a nonprofit are limited to the guidance that your board provides you and the resources that you have. So market acumen has become really important. And I've boiled this down to four competencies as well. One is detecting larger patterns. So knowing what it is that's going to be around for a while, even if it's not clear how. Examples in today's environment would include artificial intelligence, autonomous cars, things, cybersecurity. You know, these are big overarching patterns. The details or the way they hit your organization might be specific, but they're going to be around for a while. So you have to learn how to deal with them. The second is identifying disruptions. The disruption is anything that's going on in the market that has the potential to harm you or take you out. And you want to be able to identify those before they hit so that you can you know, harness that energy 
that judo move, you can take the wave of energy that's coming towards you and ride it somewhere instead of just getting knocked upside the head with it. Or you can get out of its way if you have time so that it doesn't harm you. The third area is systems thinking. And this is really about not trying to boil everything down to, you know, binaries, black or white, this or that, but allowing there to be a lot of complexities and variables that are not necessarily directly related to each other and letting your head kind of wrap around the idea that you could have a complex system. You could be inside of one yourself. And the fourth area is real-time strategy. And many associations are still locked into a periodic cycle of doing strategy every two or three years. And opportunities arise without a calendar. So do challenges. And you need people who are thinking strategically in the moment so that you can suss out how an emerging trend or circumstance is going to impact your organization and how you might be able to take advantage of it. You talk among these different attributes and competencies. You've mentioned a number of times how there's this interplay between private sector, associations, public sector, that some of these things are becoming more apparent. They've existed maybe to a greater degree in the private business world for some time, but I would imagine there are a lot of interplays here. So, Seth, is it still the case, as I might imagine, that in oftentimes, say, within a professional association, within some of these groups, that you have people from uh, private business who are on the boards and are bringing in some of that sensibility, but maybe taking some other parts of the association culture back with them to their private businesses? Where do you see the interplays going? I imagine it's not just one way. You're right about that. Actually, a community has become an asset in the private world like it's never been before. And that is a core competency in the association world. I mean, that started over 100 years ago when associations really started blooming in this country. But it wasn't until the last 20, even 10 years that corporations have seen that the building of community I mean, you just look at Nike and look at, you know, the fervent followers they have. I mean, there's so many different examples of private sector organizations now really harnessing and developing the asset of community. Let's take, it's not really a departure. This is really an extension from a lot of your past leadership work on this concept of a grand challenge. And as best as you described it to me is, and I can try to relay it, you'll do better than I, but it's something that hasn't been done before. It's a seemingly intractable problem. It's complicated, it's risky, and it has there's a broad need there. You talked at one point about, I believe it was from your work with the Center for Financial Planning. I was trying to address some talent diversity issues within the financial planning industry. I know that there have been others. So could you talk a little bit about how this relates to grand challenges and where those have been successful how they brought together these three attributes about visionary leadership. Sure. A grand challenge is a big, bold goal that an organization takes on that addresses an intractable problem out in the world. So that means it's a problem that's never been solved before. That's a challenging thing to take on because we're used to, especially in the business world, applying tactics and techniques to different circumstances that have some demonstrated value. They've worked in the past in some way, but now we're talking about applying them to a social problem that has many different components and that nobody's been able to make progress on before. And this is becoming more and more important in today's world because society is finds itself up against the wall. I mean, you can look at everything from climate change to the distribution of food. There's so many places where as a civilization, we're kind of hitting the wall 
One of the first great examples of grand challenges was the X Prize. And the first X Prize, you know, was to have a private company build a spaceship that would take two people out into the outer atmosphere twice in a, I think it was a 10 day period and return them safely to Earth. But since then, the X Prize methodology, the reward for doing that, by the way, was $10 million. And that's the methodology right there is to offer a prize to the first organization or group of people that breaks that barrier has been used over and over and over again to successfully puncture the limits that humanity is facing today. And that's what a grand challenge does. So you mentioned the Center for Financial Planning. In the financial planning profession, it is a real challenge to get women and people of color into the organizations as planners. Most, I think that the statistic is something like there are more people over 70 than under the age of 30. And the big companies, you know, TD Ameritrade, Northwestern, Mutual, all of these, Morgan Stanley, these really large finance organizations know that they need the talent and they want talent that mirrors America's demographics. And so when they take a look inward and they ask themselves, why don't we have more women? Why don't we have more people of color? The answers are complicated, but they're not good answers. And so they needed someone to take on the pipeline issue. And the CFP Board of Standards, that's the de facto financial planning certification, decided to create the Center for Financial Planning that would take this on. And they've been operating now for three years. They've amassed a significant amount of resources. They're doing research and they're making inroads into helping those large financial firms and even small ones as well. Anyone who wants to create a workforce pipeline with women and people of color. That's an example. And how does that get started? You know, it's one of those, and I know that's a very basic question, but it's so often these seemingly intractable problems you wind up, people get stuck. They say it's too big. We can't do this as a company. We can't do this as an organization or a collective. You know, who would be in charge? How do we, what needs to be the catalyst and how these principles of visionary leadership come into play so that the group is able to break through some of the barriers or the perceived barriers that have been there before? Well, certainly in the organization, there has to be someone somewhere who says, I think this can be done. It may be big and sticky and messy, but I think it can be done. UCLA now has a Department of Grand Challenges, and I am friends with the director of the department, Michelle Popowitz, and she has two Grand Challenges going. One is to make Los Angeles sustainable in energy and water by the year 2050, and the other is to eradicate depression from humanity by the end of the century using brain science and to cut it in half by the year 2050. These are huge Herculean goals, but they have become centers of gravity that are amassing resources. I'm sure that in the near term future, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars. They're bringing in faculty and students. They're building institutions to take this on. I happened to be in the room in a small meeting Michelle was hosting a year or so ago, and the mayor of Los Angeles came in and announced that he was going to join forces with UCLA and that he didn't want to wait till 2050 to become sustainable in water and energy. He wanted to do it by 2040. And there in a single stroke, suddenly UCLA had partnered with the entire city of Los Angeles and all of the resources that that brings in. So once people get exposure to this idea that a grand challenge exists, that it's a methodology, that it's something real that you can employ, then usually they look for someone who has some experience and that's when they would bring me in or someone else who's been involved in grand challenges. And we can talk about 
what other grand challenges are taking place. Often we can find a grand challenge that's in the same space. And so that there's something that they can use as by way of an analogy. And of course, people always have the question, well, how does it work? How are we going to do something that's never been done before? And while you cannot answer the specifics of that question, you can talk about the models that are being used successfully, like the collective impact model that I mentioned earlier. And so usually what will happen is that a leader will say, I know this can be done. This is a wall that we're hitting. We've got to break through this wall. Let's go find someone like Seth and bring him in and he'll talk to our board and we'll explore it together. And that's what I do. I come in and essentially host a conversation. And if the board has enough interest, then we start to go down that path together. Interesting. Well, Seth, let's change the focus just a bit here from the big grand challenges to perhaps more uh, local or community level. A number of our listeners are in private business. Many are in fundraising uh, capacities or they work in uh, not-for-profits or they're staff members with associations or groups. But a lot of people are in business in their communities and states and their industries. And they're either now on a board or they may be a candidate being recruited into a board of directors. Are there bits of advice that you could offer, especially for someone that may be a little bit new to this, that has a lot of ideas, a lot of energy? They want to, as you were talking about, more of perhaps a millennial sensibility of how to best be a board member and keep the energy up, but also work within a group oftentimes of people that they might not know very well. Sure. Well, there's a lot of resources out there. And I think this is also an opportunity for me to shamelessly plug my new book, Visionary Leadership. So that's exactly who this book is designed for. It provides the 12 competencies I talked about, but it also shares case studies of leaders who've done this kind of thing and spells out exactly what a visionary leader is and talks about how that works in an association so that you get a sense of the board dynamics and the roles that one can play. It also highlights the grand challenge and real-time strategy. So that's a great resource if someone is interested in taking this forward in their association. It's not shameless at all, Seth. That's why I asked the question. <laughs> a lot of information. <laughs> I do have one other because you have worked with, say, uh, trade associations, industry associations, and there's a lot more research coming out, a lot more insights that for organizations, for industries overall to innovate, they need to look outside their immediate industry, to look in areas that have some overlap, conceptual overlap. But it's so easy to get stuck in our industry language or our legacy and the way that we tend to approach problems. So I would imagine, for example, that certified financial planners have a certain way that they tend to see the world, that they would tend to approach problems, which might be very different for someone that uh, has a different educational path, part of a different culture, part of a different industry. So all that being said, have you seen really good examples of professional groups, industry associations who practice good habits in order to sample the world outside the bubble and bring those new ideas into the fold? Yes, I have. I served on the board of directors of the American Geophysical Union, which is the society, the professional society for earth and space scientists. And I'm not an earth or space scientist, 
but I am there because they have a public seat on their, in fact, they have two of them on their board. And I served, I was fortunate to serve two terms. So that was four years with them. And I got to sit side by side with people like the director of the Scripps Institute of Oceanography, or one of the leaders for the Mars landing, and talk with them about how we serve scientists. And you know, almost everybody else on the board is a scientist, and they do have a very particular way of looking at the world. You're absolutely right. And that worldview has blinders. There's certain things that they have been trained to develop in terms of the way that they understand what's real and what's not real and how you go about things. And it opens them up in some areas to needing some kind of fortification or support to really carry things out at, to another level of proficiency. And so they very smartly have these two board seats and they brought people like me and they brought the head of R&D at Ford Motor Company in. I had a chance to work with him and they continue to this day to bring in other people. That's an excellent example of kind of putting a mechanism in place to make sure that you're not breathing your own exhaust. A great example, Seth. This has been a fascinating discussion, and I can see how looking at different boards of directors, grand challenges, all of these, it can really be not just a box to check or something that you think you're doing to serve your community or serve your profession and go through it, but really uh, creatively, uh, intellectually energizing sort of exercise and relationships to make. Steph, how can people learn more about, uh, get your new book, learn about your other books, and follow the ways that you're seeing visionary leaders operate today? Well, my first three books are all available on Amazon. The new book, not yet. It will be shortly, but you can just go to Amazon and search on my name, Seth Kahn, K-A-H-A-N, or you can go to my website, visionaryleadership.com. And if you go to visionaryleadership.com slash the book, you'll see the new book and you can order it now. I have it in my hand now, so you can actually get it today before it's available on Amazon. That's outstanding. Seth Kahn, this has been a real treat. I want to thank you very much for joining us here on the Manager Message Podcast. You're welcome. It's been my pleasure. Real pleasure to speak with you. Thanks again to my friend Seth Kahn for joining us on the Manager Message Podcast. Among the many nuggets of value that were there in our conversation, a couple really stood out to me. One was the interplay between the corporate and association worlds in developing leaders and leadership these days. And I guess not surprising because so many association and not-for-profit organizations have on their boards people who are in corporations or have a great deal of corporate experience in their background. But it's also interesting the way that it's coming back in the other direction, where many people who are currently working in corporations and working through associations are coming back with ideas about how to address big challenges and leading complex organizations and ways uh, to be more influential. The other thing that struck me, again, not a surprise, but it's a great reminder. These competencies that Seth found among visionary leaders, these are not innate traits. These are components and things that can be learned and developed and coached and shared over time. Now, I'm very pleased that you joined us here on the Manager Message Podcast, whether you are a returning message manager or this is your first time in. We continue to build momentum, and that's because so many of you have been recommending us to your friends and colleagues and leaving those five-star ratings. If you haven't yet done so, please take just a few seconds, tap subscribe, and offer a five-star rating and your review. That helps the robots let other professionals know about this podcast so they can get value from it as well. 
there's another free business messaging resource available to you, one you can read, the Message Manager Memo. It comes to your email inbox each week. It's a brief read, about 300 words, something you can put to work right away. You can sign up on my website, jimcarr.com, that's spelled K-A-R-R-H. And while you're there, you probably know of a professional association or a company full of people looking for ways to improve their professional conversations and to grow their businesses. On my website, you'll see a speaking page as well as a related page just for event professionals. Those are the people who need to find speakers and resources and other ideas for making their in-person events memorable and valuable. You can email me directly at jim at jimcar.com. And set up a time to talk by phone if you like. My direct number is also on the website. Until next time, message managers, thanks for joining the conversation. Thanks for joining us on the Manage Your Message podcast with Jim Carr. You'll find show notes and other resources at managermessagepodcast.com and jimcarr.com. Please help us serve you and other message managers by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. And connect with Jim on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Jim Carr. Until next time, we hope your business message is shared well and often.